I love that Scott brings the pulpit out. This thing is heavy, and I think he's afraid I'm going to break my back bringing it out here. So I really appreciate that from Scott. Uh, we've been talking about the past few weeks four words that will change your life. When used correctly, when used right, when used by the prompted by the Spirit, they will change your life, and it'll be like magic. And so I thought today we would open up with a magic trick, all right? Everybody likes a good magic trick, right? Well, this is not going to be a good magic trick. This is going to be a ridiculous magic trick, but it's going to be amazing. Be prepared to be amazed. And so I need a volunteer. Vinny, would you come up here? All right, Vinny. Vinny is one of the coolest kids. He's one of my, my son's best friends. All right, you're coming up on... Oh, I like it. I used to be able to do that too, Vinny. All right? <laughs> now, here's what you got to do. Pick a card. All right? Do not let me see this card. Okay? And you can show, the, show everybody in the audience. Don't let me look at it, though. Don't let me look. You show everybody, Vinny? Okay. All right. All right. Don't let me see it. Do not let me see it. Okay. All right. I didn't see it, right? Is this your card? Are you sure? Positive? Okay. Nobody's seeing what's going on back there. Oh, no. No. This is amazing. This is amazing. All right. Now, Vinny, you can cut those cards, shuffle them up any way that you want. Just don't do the 52-card pickup. I had a kid do me that to me one time. All right? Shuffle them up. Make sure that I didn't put it in a special place. You good? All right. Okay, you, you guys ready for this? All right, Vinny. All you have to do is just be honest with me, okay? And you will be amazed. Is that your card? Are you sure? Is that your card? Is that your card? Is that your card? All right. You sure? All right. Oh, man. I'm going to do a 52-card pickup. Here, hold on to those. This might be the end of the sermon right here. Hold on to those. Is that your card? Okay. I didn't think so. Is that your card? No. Hmm. This is his card right there. Is that your card? Boom. All right. Here you go, Vinny. You can keep these, Vinny. All right. Amazing. All right. I just want to let you know that there's no black magic going on right there. All right? That was, uh, that was just a sleight of hand right there, okay? Our, <laughs> I don't even know how to transition out of a magic trick like that, but our, our scripture day is out of 1 John 8. Or no, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. And it says this, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. 
Again, our theme this month is four words that will change your life. And that first week, we talked about the word yes. I really believe that God's kingdom grows one yes at a time. One obedient yes at a time. Have you said yes to Jesus Christ? Have you said yes to serving him? Have you said yes to giving generously? Have you said yes if the Spirit's prompting? The second week, Dan talked about the word no. What in your life do you need to begin to say no to? What is holding you back from being all that God's called you to be? And then last week, Dan talked about the word thanks. What a powerful word thank you can be. Make sure that we give thanks in all circumstances. That word thanks is such a powerful word. All those words, when used with the Spirit's prompting, can bring change in your lives in very unimaginable ways, in very magical ways. And all of them most definitely can be tough to say at, at times, sometimes even impossible without the Spirit in your life. But today's word might be the toughest of all of the words. And I've picked out four words that I really believe are really hard to say. And one of them we'll be talking about today. But the first word that I really find hard to say is this word right here. Can anyone pronounce this? All right. This might. Can you, did you say it? What, I heard like five different versions of it right there. All right. I, I really believe that this might be a great condiment, but nobody can say it. So they're just like, just bring me some ketchup. All right. This brings me some ketchup. The next one is this, any name or city in the Bible, okay? Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? I don't know, all right? And so many times I've been starting to read through the Bible and I'm like, oh man, I have no idea how this is supposed to be pronounced. And I'm reading out in front of people. I've been on stage. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I got to preach at the first church that I served at right out of college. And I was preaching through Acts 2 and I started to read all of the places where the people were from. And there was one in there that, there was several in there that was hard to pronounce, but one of them that, it looked like the word fragile, you know? And, and so I almost said, it must be Italian, okay? <laughs> but the, there's so many times I've just been stuck. Well, how do I pronounce it? All right. Anyways, number three is this word right here. This is not hard to pronounce, all right? But whenever it comes to people around here, we lose all phonetical comprehension, all right? We need to get hooked on phonics because we cannot pronounce this word. I've heard Michigan, meat chicken. I've heard, we don't even, we don't even pronounce the, the first letter in Michigan. Or they, they say it's like, a, it's like a bad word, all right? The M word. The M word, all right? Now, let me just tell you, we're just going to pronounce this. I'm going to teach you how to say this word, all right? Are you guys ready? All right. This is how you say it. That team up north, right there. All right, now I've offended all of the Michigan Wolverine fans, which will lead right into our word that we're going to be talking about today, which is this word right here. And I feel like I need to say this word to all of our Michigan fans. So I will say sorry, sorry that you cheer for a team that is... No, I'm kidding. I'm stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. That's awful. That's awful. All right. But sorry is such a tough word to say. 
It's tough for all of us to say as parents. I know that there was a time this week that I got upset with my daughter and I needed to apologize to her because I went a little overboard. It's tough as husbands, it's tough as wives, it's tough to say as friends, it's tough to say as coworkers. Whatever the relationship might be with someone, it's hard to admit that we're wrong or that we can be wrong. According to our scripture today, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I don't think today that we need to convince anyone here that that we're without sin. That's, you know, some kind of gnostic belief that uh, that you've overcome, that you've reached this enlightenment, that you cannot sin in this life. If that is you, then be careful. I don't care how long you've been a believer. I don't care how long you've gone to church or how much you pray, how much you read your Bible. On this side of eternity, you will sin. And to claim to be without sin is to miss the character and nature of God. It's not biblical. In Romans 3, it says there's none is righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I don't think that that's what the message needs to be about today, necessarily. But rather not admitting those sins or not owning those mistakes can have a damning effect on our lives. In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for our sin, and we all have sin, is death. And we're not talking about a physical death here. We're talking about a spiritual death, much worse. That's what we deserve. And the thing is this, is that sin is sin. Sin is sin. A lot of times we'll rate our sins. My sin isn't as great as his sin. And it causes us to say things like, hey, I'll say I'm sorry when. I will forgive if. I know I'm not perfect but can you believe what that other person did? And we try to justify our misdeeds. And it reminds me of that story of that woman that was caught in adultery. And the men and the people came and they brought this woman that was adulterous to Jesus and says, hey, what, what should we do with her? What should we do with her? And they all had stones in their hands ready to, ready to stone her. The law, according to that day, said that they should stone her. But Jesus just paused and he stooped down and he started writing something in the ground. And then he stood up and he said, hey, if there's anyone without sin, then they can cast the first stone. And one by one, one by one, each of them dropped the rock. It's not that they didn't know that they had sin in their life. They just felt like their sin wasn't as great as the adulterous woman's sin. And at the end of the day, we all are accountable for our part, for our actions, for our thoughts, for our sin. And that, yes, that includes that adulterous woman who Jesus didn't condemn, but he also didn't ignore or condone her sin either. In fact, he told her to go live a life without sin. We're all accountable for our actions. And that is in part why God sent his spirit to be with us, to live inside of us. In John 16, 8, it says, And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That is what the spirit does. He convicts the world and he calls the world to repent, to turn from their sinful ways. I mean, it's a scary thing in our lives whenever we can sin 
without feeling any shame. It's a scary thing whenever we can do wrong, we can break God's covenant and feel no sorrow. Paul says that that sorrow is a good thing. Paul wrote a letter of conviction to the church in Corinth. And I mean, it was a tough letter. They, in fact, they lost this letter. They called it the third letter to the church in Corinth. But it was a tough letter for them to read. And it was painful for Paul to write. In fact, he talks about that pain, but then he says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. He says, yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, sorry, yeah, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to life, that leads to salvation, and leads no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And I imagine that church in Corinth went through the gamut of emotions, of denial and anger and then justification. But that church landed on godly sorrow. And there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is simply feeling bad because you got caught. That leads to earthly shame and it, and it leads also to spiritual death. But godly sorrow is an understanding that you broke the covenant. You broke that commitment that you made with God. Worldly sorrow is all about damage control and saving face. But godly sorrow leads to confession and repentance and forgiveness. Worldly sorrow is all about pride. Godly sorrow is driven by humility. Worldly sorrow is all about me, myself, and I. It's all about the flesh. But godly sorrow is about reconciliation. It's about love. It's about joy. It's about peace. Because it's all about the spirit. And godly sorrow brings forgiveness. It tears down barriers and it builds fellowship and joy. It restores relationship. It brings healing and it makes, what, uh, makes right what was wrong. And understand that godly sorrow begins and ends with humility. Our ability to say sorry, to be sorrow, sor sorry, and to experience godly sorrow reveals a measure of connection to Christ's call for us to be humble. I've heard it said that all sin begins with pride. Pride goes before the fall. Pride is the father of all sin. And I know that each one of us at times have dealt with this. Or are dealing with it. I know in my life that I dealt with pride in a great way. And I really knew that I needed to become more humble. So I worked hard and hard and hard at becoming humble. And I became humble. And pretty soon, though, I started to take pride in my humility. Which is ridiculous, alright? It's not true, okay? But how many of us here, just by a raise of hands, are humble? It's hard to quantify. Anybody here humble? <laughs> thank, thank you, Ray. All right. Appreciate it, Ray. Ray, we got one humble. Well, not exactly. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, boy. I don't know where to go from here. All right. 
Here's the thing. Humility is the one of those things that's, it really is hard to own. But it's also hard to please God without it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Putting others before yourself. In Philippians 2, it says this. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others before yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Being honest about your failures and weakness are all part of it. Where you come up short. Because this is really where God can use you most. Whenever we start to admit our failures and our weaknesses, this is where God works best. When Paul prayed to be released from his weakness, he received this answer. He said, God said to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And because of this, Paul was open about his weaknesses. In fact, he says he delighted in those weaknesses. He delighted in those insults. He delighted in his hardships. He delighted in persecutions. He delighted in difficulties because he knew that where he was weak, he would find God's strength. Paul realized he was at his best and he was most effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ when he was honest and when he was humble about his weaknesses. This week in my devotion time, I knew I was working through this part on humility, and I just came across you know, my devotion time, uh, this devotion called Getting Humble. And I just want to read a portion of, you, of it to you today because I really think it speaks to this subject about humble. And it says this, it says, Getting humble is counterintuitive, and it moves against the prevailing con- culture. You see, when we want to feel successful. We want to feel important and have others consider us so. Culture trains us, therefore, to promote ourselves, to be strategic with our time and attention, to let positions determine our treatment of others. This training is foolish. It misses the sense and strength of humility. Imagine someone humble. They're often fearless able to act on convictions rather than on trying to impress. Their decision-making is often sound, unclouded by insecurity or prejudice. They listen and welcome honest differences. They abide critics, crushed not by their criticism. They're often magnetic, treating people, all people, with respect. They engender loyalty and camaraderie. King Solomon says this, with the humble is wisdom. We want to work with humble people. We want to work for humble people, and we want to have humble people work for us. We want them as spouses. We want them as friends. 